You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hey everybody, David Guzik here. I'm so glad that you could join me for a special Monday edition. Now, normally I do a live Q&A on Thursday afternoons, 12 Pacific time when I'm in town. Uh, Sometimes I'm out of town, though it's a lot less traveling lately, that's for sure. But you know, hey, it's a strange time, isn't it? These are unique times we live in. Uh, I'm 57 years old. I can't ever remember living through something like this before. And I suppose I may never live through something like this again. And I'm sure that's a story for many of you. So in this time when people are forced to be at home and away from work, away from school, away from other occupations, people got more time on their hands. I thought, well, let's as much as we can, let's throw another, a second live Q&A here on a Monday. And I really don't know what kind of response we're going to get. And maybe it'll be a short one or maybe a longer one. But uh, I just feel like we got to do whatever we can to build a little bit of sense of community online. And I am so grateful for the many churches and ministries that are working hard at that. Uh, The congregation where I serve, Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara here in California. What a wonderful job Pastor Tommy and the whole team is doing there. It's marvelous to see. And, you know, I, I just think everybody needs to pitch in and do their part and we'll get through this time. And we're going to be blown away by seeing what God can do. Now, my pattern here on these live Q&As is I usually select a question uh, to lead with. And I have a question for today. And the question is simply this. Can our prayers lead to the salvation of others? This question comes from June. And most of the time when I do these questions on an afternoon live Q&A, it's something that somebody submitted Uh, from the comments on the YouTube channel, from Facebook, from an email, whatever it is. So June writes and sends this question in. She says this. Hi, Pastor Guzik. Do you think that intercessory prayer can actually lead to someone's salvation who otherwise would not have been saved if you did not pray for them? My real question is mainly in the second half of that question. I know that intercessory prayer is effective. However, it would would it be correct to think that people's very souls depended on our intercessory prayer? I'm asking this in light of what Jesus says in John 18, verse 9, I have not lost one of those you gave me. Thank you. Well, June, thank you for your question. Let me tell you, you're asking a great question because you're asking a question that has to do with some big areas of biblical knowledge and theology. Basically, you want to know, does prayer really make a difference? Could it be that here's a person over here and heaven or hell depends on whether or not I pray for them? And let me tell you, I'm just going to give you a very short answer to that with a much longer explanation that June. But let me just give you the quick answer. Yes. God wants us to pray, believing that our prayers matter. Let me say that again. God wants us to pray believing that our prayers matter. Now, look, I'm the first one to say that we don't understand everything about this. We don't understand precisely. And if anybody tells you that they do understand it precisely, I think they're not being completely honest or at least not being completely self-aware. We don't fully understand 
the interaction of, of, of human choices and, and divine sovereignty. We believe in divine sovereignty. We believe that God is not making it up as he goes along in the world, that God has a plan of the ages that he's working out from beginning to end. And that plan of the ages just, just has a marvelous unfolding throughout the plan of human history. And that plan of the ages comes down to the way God works in individual lives. However, we also believe that God has given human beings real choice. I mean, not fake choice, but real choice. Oh, oh, yes, our choices are affected by a lot of different factors. Our choices may be corrupted by different things within us. But nevertheless, we as human beings, we have real choice before God. And how God makes his sovereign plan of the ages mesh together with the real flesh and blood choices that human beings make, that's something a little bit beyond our understanding, but we know that God does. You see, I want you to understand this. And June, I think it's very important. One verse, as I was studying the book of Proverbs, really had an effect on me in regard to this. It's Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. Okay, here's the proverb that we find, Proverbs 21, 1. Ready? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Okay, did you see what it says there? The king's heart, the heart of a king, is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He, meaning God, turns it wherever he wishes. God holds and can guide the human heart. If God can do this with someone as powerful and noble as a king, God can do it with any man or woman that he chooses. Look, God turned the heart of Pharaoh to Joseph. God turned the heart of Saul to David. God turned the heart of Nebuchadnezzar to Jeremiah. God turned the heart of Darius to Daniel and then of Cyrus. God turned the heart of Alexander the Great to the Jews. And again, it's a remarkable thing. God has a way of extending his, his unknowable sovereignty even to the heart of a king. And we would normally regard a king to represent the most powerful of human beings. And he says, I am going to rule over that. Now, this should build our faith, that simple verse, that God can guide and change hearts. Sometimes we despair when we see the stubbornness and hardness of man's heart against God and his will. But the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he can guide it wherever he wishes. And he says there, I think this is amazing here in the same verse. He says, he does it like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Now that analogy, at least in part, illustrates how God may guide the heart of a man. In moving a river, you don't need to actually carry each drop of water to the place where it's desired. All you have to do is shape the banks of the river and it will guide the direction of the river. That's where the water will go. So God doesn't need to do violence to the human heart to guide it. He may do it through simply arranging other circumstances like the bank of a river to guide the flow where he wants it. I want you to consider that right now. Isn't it fascinating that in our present moment when um, we have all these concerns about the coronavirus or COVID-19 or whatever it is that you want to call it, when we have those uh, concerns and, and the, the, the uncertainty all around us, you better believe that God is using that in a big way in some individual lives to channel their hearts right where he wants them to be. That's what God does. 
God knows he does it like the rivers of waters. He turns it wherever he wishes. So this is a great, a precious promise. Now, June, I, I understand. Well, let me say, I think I understand what you're talking about. Oftentimes, what we're asking when we ask a question like that is we want some kind of guarantee. All right, Lord, I'll keep praying if you will guarantee for me that this person I'm praying for will, will be saved. This friend, this loved one, this relative, whatever it is. Now, listen, we need to leave aside our longings for a guarantee, and we need to just trust God. We, we need to have this kind of heart. Lord, I know that you can change the human heart. Lord, I know that you can do this without doing violence to the human will. Lord, I know that you answer prayer. Lord, I know that my prayers make a difference. So it's, Lord, hear my prayer. Because I'm here to tell you, June and everybody else, your prayers make a difference. I was just looking at it today in Exodus chapter 17, where uh, I think it was 17. Maybe it's another chapter in Exodus, but Israel is fighting against the Amalekites. And, you know, the, the Moses is up over the battle praying. And when Moses lifts up his hands in prayer, they win. When he stops praying, they lose. Listen, let me tell you, there were Israeli soldiers dying on the field of battle when Moses stopped praying. Life and death depended on his prayers. No, God doesn't want us to think that prayer is just like this self-improvement exercise. Though I will say prayer is a self-improvement exercise, but it is not only a self-improvement exercise. It moves the hand of God in ways that we can't calibrate, in ways that we can't dictate, in ways that we can't fully understand, but prayer moves the hand of God. You want a prayer for your friends, and relatives and neighbors who don't yet know Jesus Christ, pray that the veil will be removed from their eyes. What do I mean? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 3 and 4 say this. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The gospel's veiled. It's totally valid for us to pray, Lord, take away the veil. Lord, remove the veil. Let the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ shine upon them. Surely, surely, God has many who will respond to that. So thank you for your question, June. I'm going to get on now to some of the questions that are in our side chat bar. I'm glad that people have joined us here this afternoon, even though it is an unusual time. We've never gathered before on a Monday afternoon. Joanne says, so glad to be here. Yes, Joanne, glad you join us. Lucia says, hi from Spain. Yes, and I want you to know one of the reasons why I'm doing this at noon Pacific time, in some ways it would be smarter for me to do it in the evening. I might get more... West Coast of America response if I did it in the evening. Um, but man, I got a lot of European brothers and sisters and friends. And so uh, I, I want to deliberately do this at a time when maybe some more of them can join us. So God bless you, Lucia. 
Broken People says, appreciate your ministry. Pastor David, God bless you. Thank you for that. Susan says, hello, Pastor Good. So pleased to know our prayers matter. How can we pray now to comfort others in these uncertain times? Well, that's a great prayer, Susan. You want to know how we can pray for other people. And, and just pray the prayers you would pray for yourself. Pray that God would fill people with hope. Pray that God would fill people with comfort. Pray that God would fill people with perspective. Don't we need perspective in this time? You, you know, I, I don't want to make light of our present difficulty because it is difficult. And, and maybe the uncertainty of the future is even more alarming to many of us. But let me tell you something. Humanity has faced these times before, and in Jesus Christ, God's people have conquered over them, and we will conquer over them in Jesus again. So pray that people would have perspective, hope, confidence in Jesus, perspective. And, and listen, pray for those who have underlying conditions that make them more susceptible to the kind of disease that's going around in the present time. Pray for those who are older. Pray for those who have immune deficiencies or whatever it is that you would call it. So pray for them. And understand God hears your prayers. And it's good often let people know that you're praying for them. Don't just pray for them. It's good to pray for them. But uh, let people know that you're praying for them. Thanks for that. Uh, let me go on to... And that's, Susanna says, so happy to join you, Pastor David, Jose, and Susie. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Broken People says, how did Jesus grow in wisdom? Luke chapter 2, verse 53. If he, like Peter declared, uh, knows all things. Okay, this is great. Luke chapter 2, verses 53, says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in favor with God and man. I'm, I'm quoting that from memory, but it, you that, that's the sense of the verse there. And broken people is asking a great question here. How could Jesus grow in wisdom? Simply this. We need to understand that Jesus was truly God and truly man. And was those things always throughout his existence on this earth and his humanity continues into his ascension and enthronement in heaven. That's another matter entirely. But what I want you to understand is that there were certain aspects of Jesus's deity that he chose not to access or take advantage of. He, he didn't let go of them. He held on to He had them. If you're God, you can't stop being God. If you could stop being God, you were never God to begin with. So Jesus never became less God, but he chose to not access or take advantage of certain aspects of his deity. So there were times and places where Jesus chose not to draw on his omniscience that he knows all things. As God, he knows all things. But in his humanity, he said, I will make a choice not to draw on my divine omniscience, and I will develop as a person just as people develop. And that's what Luke is talking about. Luke is talking about the normal development of Jesus in his humanity. Now, there's fascinating questions. At what age did Jesus in his humanity become aware of his deity? How did this know? All I can say is this. At an appropriate level of knowledge for each age, Jesus had that. What exactly that means, I don't know. 
but but Jesus just grew in this understanding as was appropriate for his human age. So that's a great question, Susan. But really, what we're talking about is something that is relevant to the humanity of Jesus and part of that divine prerogative, the divine right that Jesus willingly laid aside. He didn't give it up. He, he just said, I'm not going to access that. I'll give you an illustration that I've used before. I, you can decide whether or not this illustration is good or bad. But I, I, I think of an Olympic sprinter. Okay, can you picture that person? An Olympic sprinter, elite class, who's at the company picnic and decides to do the three-legged sack race with um, somebody else at the company picnic. So you know what that is. You get two people, you put them side by side, and you join their legs that join together so that they have to walk forward as, as one, even though they're two people. Now, under those circumstances, that Olympic sprinter is willingly setting aside uh, his uh, qualities as a world-class sprinter uh, for a proper occasion for him to do so. He hasn't given up his Olympic sprinter status, but for the moment and for a purpose, he says, I'm not going to access it. I'm going to join myself to something that is weaker to fulfill this purpose. That, that's an analogy, of course, like any analogy illustrating some things, it's not perfect. But to me, it, it works kind of good. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Um, Emanuela says, or Emmanuel, Hi, Pastor David, what can I say to a person who's not yet a believer, whose heart is troubled from all the economic crisis? Wow. Um, Emmanuel, that's the great question. Um, what do we say to someone who's not yet a believer and their heart is really upset because of the economics of the soul crisis? And this, this, this may be something very difficult for some people, the most difficult thing that they have to deal with in the midst of this whole crisis. There are many people, they're never going to get sick from this coronavirus, but they'll suffer economically in a profound way, at least for a season. Listen, what, what we need to understand is this is a unbelievable opportunity for us to come to the knowledge that our life is bigger than what we possess. I'll just say it again. Our life is bigger than what we possess. There are things of the spirit. There are things of the kingdom of God that are bigger and more important. We, we are foolish if we put everything into the here and now. You know, Emmanuel, I, I would suggest to you, why don't you give a listen or take a view to my sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes and, and see if that might not give you some points to pray for and to speak to these people that you're describing here. They're not yet believers and they're very troubled because the book of Ecclesiastes is great reading for somebody in that circumstances. It gives, if you understand it correctly, that heavenly perspective that we all need to take, especially in a time like this. Andrea writes and says, Numbers 30 speaks of women making vows and her husband or father voiding it. Can you explain that part of scripture? What were these vows and how was the habit part of Israeli life? Okay, Andrea, I'm going to do this a little bit just off the cuff. So if I were to come back and correct my answer later, I want to give myself that little out, so to speak. But really, th this idea of making a vow, either a promise that you would do something, 
Or oftentimes a vow would be a promise that you would make some kind of sacrifice if God met you. Okay, Lord, if you um, get my child this job, I'll sacrifice the best lamb of our flock unto you as a thanksgiving. You know, that kind of vow. And simply there in Numbers chapter 30, it's reinforcing a principle that is very difficult in our modern age to talk about because it is so set against in the modern culture. And that simple idea of uh, the headship of the home belonging to the husband and the father of the home. And that's basically what it's doing. It's saying that uh, the wife and the children, especially in regard to the daughters, are in a sense under the headship, spiritually speaking, of the father in the home. And so that, that they should not be making such a vow without the father's permission or the husband's permission. And if they did make such a vow, that it could be counted as void because they went out of God's order. We understand that in our modern age, any kind of idea of headship or hierarchy is seen uh, oftentimes as offensive. Well, I, I take it back. It's not any, it's it's if there's any aspect of male headship or hierarchy, that's seen as offensive. And certainly that idea and principle has been abused sometimes greatly. There's no point in denying that. It's true. But just because a principle is abused doesn't mean the principle doesn't have its validity and especially have its God-given place. And really, Andrea, that's what we're seeing in Numbers chapter 30. We're seeing an expression of uh, God's headship in the home with uh, the husband and father. And in that spiritual dynamic of headship, he would have the right to overrule vows. And vows would mostly be regarded as a promise to sacrifice something uh, for something or another, or just some promise that one would make unto God uh, under certain conditions. That was the normal function of a vow. A vow could also be to give away some piece of property or something. Uh, we have a home and I vow that I'll give it to this Levite or something like that. And God would say, whoa, 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 that that shouldn't be done without the permission of the head of the home, which would be the uh, husband or father in that circumstance. Thank you, Andrea. Okay, Agnes says, hi, Pastor David. What do you think about progressive Christianity? Some Christians are starting to deny uh, penal or legal substitution, saying God would be an abusive father if he killed his son, Jesus Christ. Agnes, you're putting your finger on an important issue in the church today, and it's the issue of progressive Christianity. Now, I suppose there's many Christians who have never rubbed up against progressive Christianity, really have no idea what it's talking about or what it means or anything like that. But basically, progressive Christianity is sort of the, if you want to say, the second wave, so to speak, of what was called a few decades ago, the emergent church. The emergent church just sort of collapsed or fizzled or fell in on itself, but it sort of reemerged in many ways as this idea of progressive Christianity. And progressive Christianity um, is basically a reaction against uh, Bible-believing, Bible-confident Christianity. Uh, 
And as Agnes mentioned, one of the things that progressive Christianity would really protest is the idea that Jesus was actually something of a legal substitute for our sins, that God punished the Son on our behalf. Now, this is absolutely undeniably a clearly stated biblical doctrine. There's no two ways about it. Now, I, I do think it's important to understand and this is maybe something we don't talk enough about, that there are many dimensions to the work of Jesus at the cross, many dimensions. And the legal or penal substitution aspect is just one aspect. You, you might say that it's the most important or one of the most important ones, but Jesus did so much more at the cross than die as a substitute in my place. But surely that is an important part of and the only way people can get away from this is basically by um, denying the effect and the words of what scriptures say. Uh, progressive Christianity uh, likes to present itself as very seeking, very questioning, very open to questions. And listen, brothers and sisters, we need to be open to questions. What am I doing right now if I'm not open to questions? Yes, I, I, we need to talk about questions. But here's the problem. The problem is when people aren't open to answers. And there are many things. We have questions. God has answers for us in his word, but we don't want to hear them. Then the problem isn't, oh, I just like to ask questions. No, the problem is you don't want the answers that God provides. So we shouldn't make people feel guilty or wrong or anything like that for asking legitimate questions. This is an important part of discipleship, of learning the Christian faith, of just walking through what God wants us to walk through as believers. No, nothing wrong with the questions, but there is something wrong with the heart that says, um, I value questions over answers. I don't want answers. I'm allergic to answers. I just want questions. That's not quite right. Not when God has an answer. So thank you for that, Agnes. Um, Lucia says, how do our prayers work with the sovereignty of God? Well, Lucia, I, I guess I just ask you, go back to the beginning. Uh, I, I think I made it clear. We can't exactly say. All, all we know is that there is a sovereign God in heaven who's working out his plan. Yet, in many places in the scriptures, God indicates that prayer matters, that history would be changed if people did not pray. We, we see this again, the example I just gave, Moses with Aaron and Hur praying when Joshua was battling the Amalekites. When Moses stops praying, Israeli soldiers die. When he starts praying or continues to pray, they win the battle. That's just one among many instances in the Old and the New Testament where God shows us prayer genuinely matters. God does not want us to think of prayer as just a spiritual exercise that is merely for my own self-development. Now, don't get me wrong. Prayer is valuable for my self-development, your self-development, but that's not the only thing it is. It is a beautiful and powerful work before God. All right, we'll take a few more questions here. Uh, Joanne says, um, as homebound, God has blessed me with opportunities to pray for others. 
Along with all these coronavirus unknowns, recent diagnosis of cancer and family and friends has me numb. I'm failing in prayer. Oh, Joanne, I don't think, listen, if your prayers feel weak and inadequate and inconsistent, you just keep plugging away. God understands, he knows, he sees. In any effort that we make to reach out to God in such times, he values. Just keep being that child reaching out to your Abba Father in your time of need. God sees that and does not despise it. He, he pities us. He knows our frame. He knows that we're only dust. And God has this compassionate care for us, especially in times of weakness and extremity. And, and don't keep these things that these these the coronavirus, the, the friends and family with cancer and all the rest of it. Don't feel that that's a burden you have to bear. Continually bring it before the Lord. Cast your cares upon him, as Peter says, because he cares for you. OK, uh, hymns, if they mandate a vaccine with the real ID and we're not raptured, should we accept the vaccine? Wow. Boy, um, okay, let me just give the quick answer to that. And I'll read the question again. If they mandate a vaccine with the real ID and we're not raptured, should we accept the vaccine? Okay, here's what you need to understand. When you look at the book of Revelation and it talks about those who receive the mark of the beast, the mark of the beast is connected to the worship in some way of the Antichrist. Now, it could be that they don't call it worship. They might just call it allegiance or surrender or recognition. I, I don't know. But the real mark of the beast, whenever it is revealed to the world, will have that association of worship and allegiance and honoring of the Antichrist. That is what makes it the mark of the beast. It's not merely an economic or a medical thing, but it will have an association of worship and honor and allegiance, surrender of some kind. That's what we need to keep our eye open for. Uh, Matthew, God bless you. Thank you. <laughs> Darren says so much better than cable news. Well, that's encouraging. Thank you, Joanne. Um, wanders away. Uh, Friday girl talking about uh, emergent, emergent teachers like Doug Padgett from Minneapolis. Uh, again, uh, Friday girl, I, I'd say largely the emergent church movement is gone. It's folded. It's collapsed within on itself. It, it's had some sort of a rebirth in what is now called progressive Christianity. And that's something to very much keep an eye on. Gunnell. My dear mother-in-law says, thanks, Pastor Dave, for the new morning teaching. Sure, enjoy them. Hey, that's great. I do want to tell you that we are coming out now. I'm coming out with just morning devotionals. So if you subscribe to the channel, if you click on the notifications, you'll get those uh, notice that a new morning devotional every morning. Look, people are at home. People maybe need just a little bit extra encouragement during these times. So I can't say exactly how long we're doing it. We're doing it for the foreseeable future, just recording these morning devotionals. Um, all right. I'm going to, uh, end with this here. Uh, other questions, you can either submit them later, get back to them, 
but we'll just kind of wrap it up for today. I do just want to say thank you. Thank you to everybody who joins, everybody who subscribes. And I just want to give you encouragement. Listen, God is in control and prayer changes things. So let's be prayerful. Let's be excited. Let's be excited, not in circumstances, not in statistics, not in economics, maybe not a lot around us to get excited about. But listen, God is still on his throne and God still works and moves. I'm so glad that you could join me today. Join me again Thursday. For the time being, we're going to be doing these live question and answers on Thursday and on Monday, 12 noon Pacific time. Hope you can join us. Do whatever else for and friends and keep praying for me and I'll keep praying for you. God bless you. Thanks for joining today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.